Hey, Two Cities family, Pastor Kyle here. And let's just be honest, the last several months have been crazy for all of us. Uh, whatever this new and next normal looks like, we've been in it for a long time. It's still hard for me to believe that it was 15 weeks in a row that we had no in-person services at all. And then as you know, at the end of June, on June 25th, we started our Thursday night service. One service, no childcare, in the middle of the summer with people on vacation. And the response was honestly overwhelming and surprising. Um, we have had almost 700 different people come out across those eight different Thursday nights. And, and here's what that's telling us. It's telling us a lot of things and, and we've learned a lot of lessons. Uh, one of the things it's telling us is that many people, we're not saying everybody, but many people are ready to come back. And so our staff and our elders have been praying and planning on, on what's the wisest and most winsome way for us to come back. So, so Give me some grace here as I as I try to answer uh, some of these questions. But here, here's a couple of the, the principles that we are dealing with as we move forward. Uh, first, we just know people are not doing well right now in general, right? We are in the midst of a health crisis at every level, spiritually, financially, relationally. And, and there's a need to get back to in-person services. Part of it is we are so grateful for video cameras and online ministry. And we, we think it is a great supplement, but no substitute for in-person ministry. So here, here's the really good news. Here's the big announcement. On 9-13, on September 13th, we are reopening the buildings. We are relaunching the church this fall. Here's what this means. Three services we're coming back with, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 5 p.m. That's right, our Serve One Attend One culture is coming back. That's right, our kids' ministry is coming back. And we are incredibly excited. Now the services are a little bit different, right? Because we're all kind of coming into this in a different place and asking different questions. So our 9 a.m. and our 11 a.m. service are going to be mask expected. Look, that that's our way to say we are strongly requesting that you uh, bring a mask, that you wear a mask, and that uh, that is especially important as we sing. Now, then there's a the 5 o'clock service. The 5 p.m. service is called a mask required service. And, and now why do we do that? Well, because there's a large segment of our church, many of you watching, who you've said, hey, look, I want to come back. I'm ready to come back. But the main reason I haven't been back yet is because of my job or my career or the environments I find myself in. Uh, I've been told that I can only go to mask required events. So if you will create an event like that, I will gladly and willingly come. And so guys, we could not be more excited. We're gonna be having kids ministry in the morning. We're gonna be having childcare at night. And in our kids ministry, let me just tell you, it's more important than ever that we get our kids back in church, that we get them under the word. We've always said we want kids to meet Jesus. We want them to make friends. We want them to do it in a safe environment. And, and that's as true as ever. Our kids volunteers, our kids staff, they're ready to and excited and eager to welcome your kids back. So, so what's the ask? Well, a couple of things. Number one, just, this is a lot of information, okay? There's gonna be an FAQ that you're gonna be able to find on our website. Uh, there's gonna be emails that are gonna go out. You're probably gonna have a lot of questions. The FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions, is a great place for you to go to get those answers. Now also, let me just ask you to continue to pray for and pursue the unity of our church. Well, we know that everyone's got opinions, everyone's got ideas, everyone has suggestions, okay? Everyone has concerns, we, we understand that. What we're asking for is not uniformity that everyone kind of blindly just do everything. Uh, we're saying, okay, taking all the information, taking all the services, what are you gonna do? You know, we've had people say, we're gonna come back when we have Sunday services. We're gonna come back when we have kids ministry. We're gonna come back when there's a mass required service. Guess what? We got them all. So what is your next step? Now, let me just say this. I understand, we understand that there's gonna be a whole group of people that for various legitimate reasons cannot come back. They're vulnerable, they're immunocompromised, they're elderly, or they work with one of those groups, and it's just not the right time. That's why simultaneously, we're gonna be having online services in this season. But for many, and maybe even most of you, you're ready to come back to our in-person gatherings. And this is so important because the church needs to gather so that it can be strengthened and equipped because there is a lost, dying world out there that needs the ministry, the message, and the mission of Jesus. So pray with me, pursue the unity, and I look forward to seeing many of you in person very soon. All right, we can clap about that. That's exciting. Yes. Um, those of you watching in the VHQ, those of you watching online, those of you in here, those of you in the lobby, let me just say we're moving forward, okay? We are not hurried, but we're headed somewhere. 
And let me just, there's a lot of things. It's like, why did you shoot? Why am I following myself? Why is there a video of me before me, right? Uh, it's because this is a, there's a lot of stuff to communicate up here. And there's a lot of things that we're trying to say well and, and kind of thread the needle in. But there's a couple of things I didn't even get to say on the video. Let me say them now. Um, here they are. Uh, first, we did say unity, not uniformity, okay? And this takes maturity, okay? If you can only see one side of something, that's not mature. Actually, maturity, and this is good to know, especially as your kids grow up, but there's two critical kind of psychological things your kids will go through. The first psychological thing your kids go through is, uh, other people's parents think differently than my parents. Can I have an iPad? Something like that, okay? Um, and, and you, you kind of realize, that's a, that's, but that's a big deal for an elementary school student. Then guess what happens? Late elementary, middle school, guess what happens? People, well, actually it's this, I think differently than my parents do. And what am I going to do about that? And so, it, you know, I, I, we want to just, what we're trying to do here, among many other things, is to raise up a strong, mature congregation that can go, you know what, it's okay to disagree, to discuss, if you're nerdy and you got time, debate, okay? These type of things, we don't need to divide and divorce over them. So that's kind of the first thing I want to say. The second thing is we're trying to be good Christians until we can no longer be, or sorry, we're trying to be, yeah, good citizens until we can no longer be good Christians. So, you know, because part of this whole thing that makes it kind of messy and confusing, and it's like, well, it depends on who your governor is, it depends on where you live, kind of what you do, right? And, uh, and it depends on how you view everything. And let me just tell you, I can't give you every side, but let me tell you a couple sides of this. Uh, there are some people who it's like, it, this is how simple this is for them and for some of you. There's a, governor, there's a governor who has told us that there's a mask mandate. I'm going to wear a mask. That's the end of it. It's, I mean, I'm not praying about it. I don't need to pray about it. I, don't need to, I, don't, I know what the scripture says. I'm done. There's a whole other group that goes, there's the overreach of the government into my life in places it should not be, in areas it should not be. It's hindering my worship. And it's going against my Christian conscience. And so... I don't want to wear a mask. And I don't need to pray about it. I don't need to think about it. I don't need any verses about it. Do you understand that? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to go, well, okay, how do we do? How do we deal with the government, Christian conscience, the freedom of an individual? Here's what we're trying to do. We can't, we can't and we won't please everyone. We are trying to think for everyone. So, that's, so here's the third thing. This is for us for now. Well, did you know that? There's other churches, there's other Christians, and you know, this is important. For us, for now, says two things. For us says humility. I know there's other churches doing different things. There's churches doing the exact opposite of us. Now, here's what this is. It's like, well, where, do, where are they? Who's their governor? What's the size of their church? What's the scope of their ministry? How big's their building? It's like, well, we don't know. Okay, and then for now means flexibility. And that's really important. When you make decisions, you want humility and flexibility. Humility is, hey, for now. As I get new information, as we get new information, we hold the right to make new decisions. This for us, everything we shared for you, is a home, not a prison. And so here's the ask in person now is this. What are you going to do? And I'm going to pray for us together because we, have a, because we want to be a church that prays and plans, plans and prays, right? You don't want to just be a church that prays and uses that as an excuse not to think. And we don't want to be a church that plans and is just worldly and, and just thinks what, what's the best system and structure but not thinks about the spirit. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to create a time and a moment for you right now to start thinking about what you're going to do, because we're all busy, and we're all overwhelmed, and it's easy not to think about this for, for more than five seconds or when we're talking about it right now. So I'm going to pray and just give you an opportunity right now to just think about what you're going to do as we move forward as a church in this next season. Pray with me. Lord, I pray for the men and women in the VHQ venue, in the lobby, in this room, watching online. Lord, we have shared after prayer and counsel our plan. Lord, I just want to give everyone a moment just to, before you, before you, with their own conscience, to just answer this question. How are they going to re-engage their heart, their family, with the Christian community this fall, Lord? I pray for those who are going to be online only and they grieve it. They're going to tune in, they're going to take notes, they're going to be engaged, but they're going to be unable for legitimate reasons to come. Lord, I pray for a whole group who are going to voluntarily and incrementally confront their fears. Lord, I pray for those who are going to make a lot of different decisions for there to be unity in our church as we do so. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, welcome if you're new, and we're, I told you this before, we got new people every week. It's exciting. Our weekender is, is, there's more and more people signing up. You're going to hear more about that. This is an exciting season. So if you're new, turn to Malachi, Malachi chapter 2. Type 2, turn 2, flip 2 and find, and, you know, if you've got a Bible. Malachi 2, it's a really kind of old book. We're looking at a book that's like 2,000 years old, 2,500 years old. Uh, it's not much read. It's not much preached on. It's not much talked about. And after a couple weeks, you're like, now I know why. Uh, right? It's an interesting book, and it gets a little bit more interesting today. We'll see that. Uh, and, and here's the big idea with it, because when you read a book of the Bible, don't you sometimes look at a book of the Bible and go, what is this all about? Like, Isaiah is a big book, right? Or Matthew's a big book of the New Testament. Or Romans is a big book, and like, I don't know, give me the forest before I can kind of know every tree. So here, here's the forest. Here's the big idea. Here's the big E on the eye chart. Um, here's what this is about. It is God's final word in the Old Testament to put him first. That's what it is. And I can't, because we've got a lot to cover tonight. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but I can't, can't go through all that we've talked about in the past, but just so you know, so far, God took chapter one and basically called out all of the people for their lack of love toward him that was rooted in forgetting his love toward them. And, and again, we're going to say some hard things tonight. We're going to see some hard things tonight. But what, what you see, and what I want you to know is if you are new and you read, or you, you forget this, you read Malachi verses one and two, God says, I have loved you. That's the theme and banner over this book. I loved you and I'm committed to you, so I might, you know, in fact, I will have to say a couple hard things to you because of how much I love you. And so in chapter one, he calls out the whole church, and then in chapter two, he calls out the clergy. Chapter one is the people, chapter two is the priest. Um, Chapter one is the members, chapter two is the ministers. Okay, and we talked last week, it's about leadership. Let me just encourage you. We said last week, everybody isn't a big L leader. They don't have a platform, a position, a large following, but everyone can be a little L leader. If you have a relationship, you have influence. And what's it going to look like in this next season? Because look, there's going to be a lot of people that are struggling. Get ready for a family crisis. This is a crisis at every level. It's a financial crisis for some people. It's a, a spiritual crisis for some people. It's a relational crisis for some people. And some of you, there's been so much collateral damage in your community group. It's like, all right, stop being the thermometer, start being the thermostat. Start saying, okay, I'm not going to just float with the temperature, I'm going to set the temperature. This is a great time to do that. And then today what we're going to see is he's going to talk about marriage and family. So it, if, don't, don't you know, turn your brain off if you're single because 80% of you will be married. That's kind of a, you know, marriage is decreasing, but still 80% of people across their life will be married at least once. And then guess what we're going to see? We're going to see today that God cares about marriage and family. Now, why would God care about marriage and family? Because guess what the church is? The church is a family of families. That's what the church is. And there's this kind of symbiotic relationship between the church and the family. And you know this, and this is part of why we're reopening the buildings, is because there's this back and forth that what makes a strong church? Strong, strong families, strong marriages. And then, well, well how does that? Well, well, but chicken or egg, right? But what makes strong families? Strong churches. I mean, I got an email not that long ago. A lady says, she's sharing about her community group. She says, I don't know what, when the men and the women break up in community group, I don't know what they talk about, but last week the men broke up, they talked, the next day my husband started reading the Gospel of John with me. What's what's that about? That's about being deeply connected to a church that values the right things and it starts affecting every part of your life. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Malachi 2, verse 10. And God's going to introduce himself. God is constantly introducing himself because we're constantly forgetting who God is. Here's what God says. Have we not all one father? This is Malachi reminding them of the character of God. Isn't God our dad? Isn't God our father and the church our family? And then he says this. Has not one God created us? So this is so important. He's pointing to the two fundamental realities about God in the world. That God is our dad and God is our designer. This is one of the big ideas you have to get. God describes himself as our dad and our designer. And that's important because you see things differently once you become a dad. How many dads know that, right? Like, you know, the average guy before he's a dad, he's like, I don't know what I believe about things. Afterwards, he's like, I believe in arranged marriages. I do. (laughs) As soon as I become a dad, I believe in arranged marriages, yes. Um, it's because you begin to care about different things. You begin to see things differently. So he says, um, have not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Here's what he's saying. There's two things you need to know about God and one thing you need to know about you. 
It's like, well, what are the two things we need about God? He's our dad and our designer, or you could say our father and our creator. And I don't have a lot of time to spend on this because we have to talk about marriage today a lot, and, it's an, and that's the thrust and thesis of what we're getting at. But this is really, really important because what he's going to say is he's going to tell us some really hard things. Okay? What God, this is important to know, what God says about marriage and divorce is so intense. Like what he says marriage is and what he, and what he says divorce is and how those work together, it's so terrible. It's so hard that, in, read this, go later to Matthew 19, verse 10. When Jesus teaches it, his disciples say, it would be better if we don't get married, huh? So one of the things is, as I, I kind of read that, and I go, okay, I guess part of my job then is to teach about marriage and divorce in such a way that that's your response. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't get married. Maybe I don't, I don't know if I want to get into this if I can't get out of this. And so he's going to say these things, but he's going to say, I'm your dad and your designer. Dad is like what? I love you. I got your best in mind. What's designer? I know how this works. Right? And, and, and if you just return to those two things, like, I don't know, if you're starting your college career and you're like, well, you know, what do I need to know? Well, God's my dad, if I'm a Christian, and God's my designer. And therefore, like, because in my life, I'm going to probably doubt those two things, that he cares about me and that he, that he knows what's best because, I don't know, it's going to be easier to give in to some temptation than to believe that my dad has what's best in be- uh, what's best in mind for me. And so he introduces himself, and then he tells us one thing about us. Look, look at this. Go back to that verse real quick. In, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, why then are we faithless? So he says two things about God, one thing about you. Summary, God is awesome, you are faithless. Right? That's the whole Bible. God is our Father, we are faithless. Now this is a big deal because if you underline in your Bible, underline the word faithless, and if you want to play a little word search, Find it in this chapter. It shows up five times. That word only shows up 40 times in the whole Bible, or sorry, the whole Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. Shows up five times here. What does faithless mean? It means I don't keep my commitments. It means, it means I say I'll do something and then I don't, and then I tell God I won't do something and then I do, right? And how many of us have done this, right? You don't have to read, please don't raise your hand. <laughs> don't raise your hand. <laughs> um, um, but you, you, know, you struggled with some sin and the pleasure of that sin, you kind of sobered up from it, whatever it was. It was something sexual, or you abused some drug, or you went someplace, or you were with some person, or you, had, you yelled at your kids, or you yelled at your spouse, and you sobered up, whatever that means for you. And then you said, I'll never do it again. Then, in fact, you've even added this, God, I will actually, I will tell someone if I do it again. I'm not going to tell someone now. But if I do it again, then, I'll, then you do it again. And then every January is, I will make a bunch of commitments to God, we call them you know, New Year's resolutions or whatever. And, uh, and then the average New Year's resolution doesn't make it to the Super Bowl. And so we, we are a people. Then this is just, a, you know, it's good. It's like, well, let's have a realistic view of ourselves. We are a, God is faithful. God is our father. And we are faithless. And he gives us an example. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, he goes like this. He starts reading about all these places and people. Uh, don't get lost in the details here of all these places. But let me read it. Judah, that's an area. Judah has been faithless and abomination. Now that's not a word we use often. Abomination is not a word you use often. Abomination basically means like shocking and disgusting. That's what we would say. Something completely shocking and completely gross and completely disgusting has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned, and that's where we get the word profanity from, which means like a dirty word. So some people say dirty things, other people live dirty things. Some people have dirty lips, other people have dirty lives. He said they've profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And you go, well, what did they do? Are they practicing child sacrifice? Like what would you do that would be so terrible that God would call it an abomination? He saves that language for only certain categories of sins. And here's what he did. He married the daughter of a foreign god. You go, well, what is this about? Well, at one level, it's about idolatry. But at another level, basically, and we're going to see this in the whole, the whole situation, one of God's biggest concerns at the end of the Old Testament is that you had Christians, God's people in the Old Testament, we'll call them Christians, you had Christians marrying non-Christians. You're like, well, that happens all the time. What's the big deal? Well, it's actually a huge deal for God because basically the whole Old Testament, and this is why it's good to know your whole Bible, it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. 
the, the, the whole idea in the Old Testament was God basically says in like every book, hey, listen, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna go into a land, you're gonna make a lot of money, you're gonna forget about me, your parents knew me, but you'll forget about me, and the next generation will just really forget about me, probably even forsake me. And then what you'll do is, is uh, you will stop marrying other Christians. And you'll, pro- you'll call it missionary dating. And you'll, just, you'll start saying, well, you know, I might be able to lead them to the Lord. And, you know, and what ends up happening in almost every situation, missionary dating usually leads to miserable divorce. Because almost in every situation, what tends to happen is the non-Christian ends up influencing you more than you do as a Christian to them. But people read this and they go, you shouldn't marry foreign people, foreigners? Is this, is God, and and let's stop and talk for about this for a second, is God against um, interracial marriage? Is this what God's saying, don't have interracial marriage? No, he's not saying don't have interracial marriage. Interracial marriage is good and can be celebrated and affirmed and all that. Um, what he's talking about is interreligious marriage. When, and sadly, you know, part of the bad witness of the church is for a long time, people were like, well, you know, white people shouldn't marry black people, and Indians shouldn't marry Asians, you know, and black people shouldn't marry, you know, Indians, or whatever. And it was like, what? And it, it's like, actually, no, 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 the most important thing is the soul level. The deepest level of intimacy is the soul level. But everyone was fine with like, yeah, you know, I think he used to believe in God, so she should marry him because his dad's rich and they'll be good for a long time, right? I mean, that, that, but that happens all the time. Now, so we have to talk about marriage because we're going to talk about marriage for a long time tonight. Okay, all right, we're going to play a game. Who can get married, who can't get married? Okay, uh, two believers, can they get married? Yes. yes, yes, okay, right? In fact, we celebrate that. We have had so many weddings in our church, okay? So many weddings in our church. Uh, there, was, there was a time when I would be overwhelmed because not every service, but every Sunday, somebody would come up to me and go, hey, we just got engaged, will you do our wedding? Or, or, or can somebody in this church do our wedding? And we just celebrate that. I mean, I, not, it's not the only sign of health. One of the signs of health in a church is a lot of people meeting, getting married, and having babies in that order. Um, meeting, getting married, and having babies, in that order. Um, that's, a, that's a healthy side of church. We rejoice in that. Uh, okay, can two non-Christians get married? Say it loud. Yes! Right? Yes, absolutely. Because, in, let's get theological for a second, marriage is called a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance is something that God gave before the fall to everybody. It's good, it's for human flourishing. If there were two non-Christians, and they asked me, and I had a relationship with them, maybe they're my neighbors, they're getting married, I would, you know, again, all things considered, we'd have to talk about it and see if I, but I'd do the wedding. Because I, 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 in principle is what I'm trying to say. Um, because it's a creation ordinance. Now, can a Christian marry a non-Christian? Say no. <laughs> Moms and dads, say no. No, no, no is the right answer. Okay, well, what if the non-Christian is good looking? So the answer is still no. What if nobody understands him and he has potential? No. What if he makes me feel a certain way? No, it's still the answer. Okay, okay, good. Okay, so um, you have to understand all that because he's gonna give us in here an incredible theology of marriage. I want you to see it. Look at verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. So he's giving this background. He's like, well, just let's read it. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. You're crying. You're ugly crying. In fact, look, you're weeping. You're groaning. Because he no longer regards the offering. It doesn't matter what you bring if God doesn't accept it. God has to say, this is what I want, and I approve of it when you bring it. It says this, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But, verse 14, but you say, why does he not? So what was happening is basically, I'll give you the background here. People were coming, they were bringing their gifts, the Lord wasn't accepting them. How, how did they know? He wasn't blessing their lives. He wasn't answering their prayers. That's two ways you know. It, this is actually very common. If you read 1 Peter 3, don't go there now. 1 Peter 3 is basically the same thing God says to these men. And, and this is a New Testament. He says in 1 Peter 3, hey, if you don't live your, with your wife in an understanding way, I won't listen to your prayers. It's the exact same thing. We're going to see this because look what happens here. Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Why doesn't he answering my prayers, blessing my life. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been. Here's that word again, if you want to circle it or underline it, faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by 
covenant. So here's what was happening. And, and tell me, because a lot of times people will read the Bible and go, is this relevant? Oh, man, we don't, even, we don't even need to make it relevant. We just show. Like, this is so relevant. This book is 2,000, actually, about 24, 2,500 years old. And here's the situation. There were some guys who were older, who made some money, and who left their wives for younger, better-looking women. I've heard this still happens. I mean, this is a, in fact, actually, if you can Google this another time, gray divorces, gray divorces is, is a new category where basically people with gray hair get divorced. And it's, it's like the highest category of uh, divorce rates that are increasing. And I saw this again, I told, I told some of you, some of you know this, uh, I spent 10 years on the college campus. And here's what you learn on the college campus, that uh, if somebody shows up on the college campus and they are the youngest sibling there's a chance their parents might be getting divorced that year. It happened all the time. Because you didn't have a Christ-centered home, you had a child-centered home. And then what happens is it's like, well, man, the baby boomers made a lot of money. And people are living a long time. And people just do math. We've made a lot of money. We're both going to live a long time still. Like, we might each have, like, 20 more years. And our whole purpose was kind of raising these kids and getting them into the best school possible and so let's go our separate ways. Now, they didn't have that luxury back then in the sense that, and one of the reasons, we'll get into this later, but is, uh, what was happening is the women, the women couldn't divorce really functionally back there. They didn't have the authority to. So men would divorce, and then what does divorce do? It hurts the women and children. And so what, what God's going to do is he's going to talk about uh, marriage. And, and if you write in your Bible, I, I like to write in my Bible. If you write in your Bible, you might want to write uh, densest theology on marriage in the Old Testament. What I'm going to read you tonight, it is, there is no passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that talks about marriage and divorce more than this passage. Uh, so if you're going to, if, I don't know, you know, if you ever teach on marriage, I don't know, a couple comes to you and says, what is the Old, just the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament say about marriage? You'd basically be Genesis 1 and 2, mostly Genesis 2. And then you'd be like, uh, lots of stuff in the Proverbs. And then you'd be like, Malachi chapter 2. It's interesting that, that at the very end, one of God's final words before he's silent for 400 years is, I want to talk to you about marriage. I want to talk to you about divorce. And I know as we get into this, it's like a super emotional you know, subject for a lot of us for like so many different reasons. Whether you're single, whether you're single again, you know, and we can get into all this, like, was the divorce your fault? Was it not? Was it both of you? Did you remarry? I mean, I mean, it's just, did your parents do it? Are you thinking about it? You know, and, and just, I mean, if you're new again, you're watching for the first time, I've never talked about divorce in four years. You know, it's just, well, this is one thing, I mean, maybe slightly not for a while, because it's just like it doesn't come up that, that often. It's not like some special scarlet A category of sin. It, it just comes up, and we're going to talk about it. But we have to first talk about marriage. So let, let's read this. I want you to see verse 14 and 15. But you say, why does he not? Why doesn't he bless your life and answer your prayers and accept your offerings? Because the Lord was witness. Between you and the wife of your youth, most people got married young, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Do you see all the theology in that? Did he not make them one? There's more theology with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So, and a warning at the end. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be, there's that word again, faithless, not keeping commitments, to the wife of your youth. So before, and I'm going to unpack that whole section, before we talk about it, let's think a minute, because it's always good to see the diamond of what scripture says against the black cloth of what culture says. Think with me, okay? How, how, do, how do people think about marriage today? I've got a couple ideas. Well, you know, you've got, like, if you go to Wake Forest or Salem College and you sit in a classroom, you know, your average professor is going to say, like, oh, it's an oppressive institution created by the, you know, patriarch. It's like, not at all. Not even close. In fact, one, by the way, one of the things that made Christianity attractive, maybe it will again at one time, what made Christianity super attractive for the first 300 years were marriages, particularly for women. They thought, well, this will be a place where I can have lots of kids, raise them, my husband will care for me, my husband will love the kids. And for the first three to 500 years, depending on who you read, they would say good, godly marriages was the sign and symbol of what Christianity was about and one of the main reasons people were so attracted to it. 
So, so that would be like one thing you'll hear. Here's another thing you'll hear. It's optional, which I, I guess, of course, it is at one level. I mean, not everybody gets married in the Bible. If Jesus is single, Paul's single, it's fine to be single. Celibacy is an honorable thing. Um, we're all going to be single and married to Christ in heaven in that sense. So singleness is an option, but what I mean by optional is like, I, I don't even know if I'm going to do it. I'm not even, it's not even on my radar. You know, which is an interesting thing to see a generation not even think about marriage. It's like, well, what would make this generation so unique? I mean, one question you want to ask all the time is like, if you don't know what to do, well, what have godly people always done? And you would have to be really unique not to do that. You would have to be really special not to do that. Well, godly people have always gotten married for the most part. There's a place for singleness. There's a place for celibacy. There's all that. Understandable. Um, so, so there's that. And then what it probably is, is like what, what's happened, and this is good to know too in our society, is that marriage has come at the end of adulthood instead of the beginning. So historically, marriage is like, well, I'm going to get married, you know, super early 20s, maybe even really late teens. We're going to have a lot of kids. We're going to begin our life together, and we're just going to grow and learn together all the time. Well, that, that's like, that's actually historically, globally, biblically, that's what happens. You know, what's happened now? Marriage happens at the end of my life, the end of my adult life. After I've gotten four degrees I don't need. After I've traveled the world. After I've had all of these hobbies. After I've got emotionally and physically involved with 15 people. I'm not saying there aren't legitimate reasons that marriage gets delayed. I get that. But people are pushing it off. And they're not, they're not like celibate and going, I could use this for ministry. They're trying to find, find free porn on the internet. That's what they're trying to do. And they're, 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 you know, the, the longer you're not married, the harder it is to make that transition from my life to our life. So that, that's, that's what we're pushing and pressing against when we're talking about marriage. And so let me show you what, what it says. Let's take each, each part of this verse by itself. First, he tells us three people are involved in every wedding. Do you see it? But you say, verse 14, why does he not? Well, here's why. Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. So he says, hey, look, at every wedding, there's three people involved at least. The, the bride, the groom, and God. And if you don't know this, like when you go to a wedding, what you are technically, biblically is a witness. And there, is, there are human witnesses and there is a divine witness. And when you show up at a wedding, this is why you don't want to go to a wedding that you do not approve of. Because what you are is you're actually a witness there going, awesome, I celebrate this. Um, and so what, what God is basically saying is, hey, I was actually, now we know God's everywhere, right? So why would God say I was a witness? What he's, what he's basically saying is, you know, I was there in a really present way. I was taking notes. I know what you said. I saw it, and I'm going to hold you to it. So that's kind of a weighty thing. You're like, okay, God was there, and that's real serious. And that's why, that's why you, know, you know, I love rehearsal dinners. I love receptions. Uh, but the heart of a wedding is that ceremony with God and the other witnesses watching this couple come together. So that's the first thing he says, and just, just, it all just arises right out of Scripture. Um, let's look at the next one. Verse uh, 214 again. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So she's your companion. Um, it, it's interesting. When you see companion and covenant, those are the next two things we'll talk about. What do people today think marriage is about? O only one of those, right? Companionship. Which is important. Companionship basically means friendship. It, it, in the Hebrew, the idea is we share things. Isn't that beautiful? We share secrets. We share a life together. We share a bedroom. We share children. We share a bank account. We share good times. We share bad times. Because, you know, what, compa what, what, what companionship does is, in, in marriage by that, that account, is it makes the good times twice as good and the bad times half as bad. And some of you, you're going to need to work. When you hear this, some of you are going to, you're going to be in different places. Some of you are going to be like, okay, God was a witness. I need to take marriage more seriously. Uh, some of you are going to be like, okay, companionship, uh, my, me and my spouse, me and my husband, me and my wife, we need to find something together that we share. We need to start sharing. Uh, by the way, uh, I heard one counselor, very respected counselor, say, you have to talk 90 minutes a week to your spouse to lock your narratives for life. So you, I mean, so I don't have a Bible verse. That's just practical application. In the sense that um, it could be 90 minutes one time a week. It could be 15 minutes, you know, I can't do math. Many times a week. Um, <laughs> the, the whole point is you have to, it takes a lot to share your life. It takes a lot of conversation. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of intentionality. That's companionship. Next is covenant. Covenant is I'm committed, right? There's the vows. Uh, we, we live in a culture that is very confused about covenant. We tend to think contract. Contracts are great for the marketplace. Covenant is great for marriage. 
Like, we're not anti-contracts, okay? Contracts are like, hey, you make sure you get your thing, and I make sure I get my thing, and if we don't get it, then, like, I'm out, right? But that's not how marriage works. Marriage is a covenant. And a basic covenant says, neither of us is leaving. See, this is so powerful, and some of you need to hear this. What marriage says is, I'm committed to you and all the ways you will change. I want you to know that some of you are single, and you're like, that's what I need to know, that that's what marriage is. When I get married, that's the summary of my vows. The summary of my vows are this. I'm committed to you and all the ways you will change, which is basically why, you know, you want, it's, it, I mean, you can write your own vows if you want to, okay? It's not like you can't do that. But why normally you'd want to read the vows that are given to you? Because the vows that most people write today, you know, I won't burn the cookies. I'll laugh at your jokes. It's like, not marriage. Um, that, not marriage at all. You know, for sickness and in health, richer or poor, what is that saying? I'm committed to you. This is so powerful. I'm committed to you in all the ways that you will change. Dot, 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 that I don't even know about. Because you don't know. And so he says, okay, so there's companionship, there's covenant. Now, we don't get that right because we think contract, prenuptial agreement is the, the greatest example of this. Let's get our divorce situated before we get our marriage started. And so this is, that's a contract. I, let me know my way out of this before I get into this. And here's what's so powerful. If you will realize, and we'll get more into this in a second, there's no way out. Now, there's a little way out. We'll talk about that. There's, there's, there's an exception. We'll talk about it. But when you realize there's no way out, it leads to solutions. Commitment leads to solutions. Necessity is the mother of invention. It's like, if, if we're not getting out of this. So we're going to have to fight about this for five hours every night for the next 10 weeks so we can have the next good 30 years. It's like, well, where would you get the energy to do something like that? Not if, not if you, know, you use the D word as a joke all the time, or if in the back of your mind you have an exit strategy, you're not gonna be able to do that. So he says it's covenant, and then look what he says next, oneness. Did he not make them one? It's like, well, that sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? It's great that the Bible's got one author, isn't it? That, that, that's, that's the exact same thing. Let me read it. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So, so now, as we read a verse like that, it's like, what does it mean? It's like, we don't fully know. How does, it, there's a mystery, right? How does God bring two people together? It happens. We physically see it in the, in, in the sexual union to become one, but there is a deep spiritual reality to this and, and here's the interesting thing to think about, just, just how it functionally works out in your life. For those of us, and I know not everyone will, for those of us who are married and are married across time, it's one of the only things in your life that brings unity and cohesion across time. I mean, you have no idea how much life your, your life will change. You're like, well, we made this much money, then we made this much money, then we lost this much money, we had kids, our kid got sick, we lived in this city, you had that career, our friends did this. It's like, well, geez, how is there any continuity across your life? And the answer is, my husband, my wife. They were there the whole time. This is why there's one last name. All these things are super symbolic. The idea of the one last name, the one bedroom, the one bank account, that's all symbolic to point to the oneness. And it's also why I mean, basically divorce, no matter where you land on what with divorce, divorce is the ripping and the tearing and the shredding, if it's even possible. And that's a whole other conversation, to really ever unone what God has made one. It's amazing how many people talk about how their first marriage keeps showing up in their second marriage. Not just the kids, just a lot of things. A lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts, a lot of regrets, a lot of, I mean, it's deep. And so that's marriage. Now we've got to talk about divorce. It's like, that was the easy part. Okay, let's look here. Verse 16. Well, verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit? That's the spiritual nature of all this in their union. Verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. And covers his garment with violence. People are like, what does that mean? Uh, back then, instead of an engagement ring, you see this with Ruth and Boaz, um, they would uh, cover, as, as a, like as a engagement ceremony, you would cover the garment, cover the woman with a garment and say, would you be mine? So he's saying you did that, but then you did the opposite of that later. 
He says this, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves, another warning, in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, let's talk about a couple things. You know, this is always difficult for multiple reasons. I mean, you never know who's listening, who's watching. I don't know each of your stories. Um, it, divorce is, if we don't have it at some level theological, it just becomes emotional and situational. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to basically say, and this is a good thing to do with anyone that you might disciple or anyone you might teach, you always want to try to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And we know there's both people in here, you know? It's like some people, you talk about divorce, it's like, golly, you know, my husband left me and he ran off with someone else and my kids' hearts are broken and what does God say about divorce again? I mean, like, I feel terrible being divorced. There's others of you, like, like in a past life I got divorced and now I feel like I'm new in Christ and God's changed my life. What does this mean for me? I mean, there's just a whole, some of you are, you know, you're, you know, the kids of divorced parents. And it happened at a certain age and it's affected you in different ways. And so we're, we're all over the place in this room. And what's interesting in verse 16 is so in the Hebrew, and again, I don't like to talk about original languages a lot, but it's so, it's um, the, the literal translation, and some of your Bibles will say this, or all of your Bibles will have a footnote that it says in verse 16, this is a very famous verse, I don't know why the ESV didn't translate it this way, or maybe I do because it's offensive. God hates divorce. You've heard that verse probably. Well, let me say a couple things about it. One, of course, if God's gonna love something, he's gonna hate something. I mean, you know, you don't have like a super small version of God. Of course God's gonna hate certain things. If you love marriage, if you love children, if you, um, you know, love men and women, if you love to see strong marriages, you're going to hate divorce. Let me tell you else, because I, mean, I, you know, I know a lot of people and I've seen a lot of things and so have you, and guess who else hates divorced? Divorce. Divorce people. I mean, they do. And, I, and I, let me tell you this, it doesn't say God hates the divorcee. You know, there's all these tensions and all this, right? Divorce is an event, not an identity. You know, it's an event, a terrible, tragic event that may have lasted a long time. I've heard a difficult divorce is in the same category as non-terminal cancer. The years you're going through that divorce, it's the same emotional, physical impact on you as non-terminal cancer and about a quarter million dollars of, of, your, of your earnings is what a bad divorce does to you. And everyone divorce is bad. I'm talking of a divorce with kids involved and you hate each other and you got separate lawyers and you I mean, whoo. And so people go, well, you know, is there an exit strategy? Like, how do I, like, if you talk about marriage, you gotta talk about divorce. Then we gotta talk about remarriage. Then we gotta talk about leadership. Did you follow that? There's four categories. There's, uh, what's marriage? Can I get divorced and for what reasons? If I'm divorced, can I be remarried? If I did any of those things, can I be in leadership and where? And I can't talk about all this tonight. I mean, there's just no way. And so I'm gonna try to talk just for a little bit about divorce because, you know, divorce is becoming more and more popular. 50%, and here's what you need to know. First marriage divorces, 40% of people uh, are divorced. So when you read the statistic, 50% of marriages end in divorce, that's true. Uh, what's not true is, is that 40, that's, it's not 50% of first marriages. It's 50% of all marriages. So 40% of first marriages end up in divorce. 61% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages end in divorce. That's a really, I mean, and we don't know why that is. Here's what we do know. You have three options if you have a difficult marriage. You can, and more than this, but here's three simple ways to think about it. You can have the same marriage with the same spouse, which you probably don't want. That's why you're so miserable. Like, I don't want this marriage. I've had this marriage for a decade. It's terrible. Okay, you can have a new marriage with the same spouse. That's powerful. It may take a long time. You may have to get counseling. You may have to join a community group and be honest about just how you fight every time before and after. I don't know. I mean, you, you got you to open up a little bit, but you can have a new marriage with the same spouse. Here's a third option. You can have the same marriage with a new spouse. Huh? What does that mean? Here's what that means. It means that you can have this same marriage that you're, you're, a lot of people's, I'm not saying, there are great, let me just say this. There are people who've gotten remarried, they're flourishing, praise the Lord, their, their second marriage or their third marriage is going great. I'm telling you what normally happens. Is, what, here's what happens with remarriages. The first 10 years of your marriage are the most difficult parts of your marriage. 
I mean, I know that's a little subjective, but most counselors will tell you that. Most people will tell you that. It's like, well, of course, you're trying to make money. You're trying to build your career. You know, you're, you're, you got over the honeymoon phase. You're trying to have kids. You're trying to raise kids. You're trying to figure out roles and responsibilities. You're trying to negotiate careers. And so most marriages end after the first 10 years. And then they both say, or one of them says, what I need is I need a new spouse and it'll get me a new marriage. And then the forbidden nature of like, ooh, do we like each other? And what is this going to become? And, you know, and she's young or he's got a lot of money or whatever. That all takes over. And the first year is the same first year as your first marriage, which was so good. You get where I'm going. And you relive the same 10 years with two or three or four different spouses. And this happens way more than you think it does. So we are way out of time, but let me give you a couple things. Um, why? So what are the reasons for divorce? Two reasons. <laughs> Adultery and abandonment. And I literally don't have time um, to get into all the details of those, but, but this is why you're in a community group. This is why you're in a DNA group. This is why you have a Bible. You can find, so Matthew 19, and there's other places, Jesus basically says, no, adult, or no, no divorce except for adultery, which is the word pornea, which we get the word pornography from, which is all types of kind of, you know, sexual sin. And so then the whole conversation goes, well, what can, constitutes adultery? It's like, well, this is why you need to be a part of church. This is why you don't just need to talk to your bitter divorce friends. That you need to be in godly counsel, in godly community, under pastoral care, thinking through all of these, and God's desire is always reconciliation and restoration. And the second is abandonment, and that's 1 Corinthians 7, 15. And Paul goes through this whole thing. He basically says, hey, look, if there's this woman, and she becomes a Christian, and she is married to a non-Christian, but she becomes a Christian, and then he abandons her, which does that still happen? Absolutely. I mean, I actually knew a pastor. He came home from a retreat, and his wife left a note, had packed up everything over the weekend and left him. It happens both ways. Just so you know, 75% of divorces are initiated by women. It's not that women, it's women's fault more. Women just normally say, I can't handle it anymore. Women are naturally more sensitive to negative emotions, so just, I can't handle it. I'm not putting up with your alcohol addiction anymore. I'm not, whatever it is. So here's the cold question about abandonment. What constitutes abandonment? Answer, not calculus, but community. <laughs> There's not a formula. Well, we've been married five years, and he did this for two years, and I'm kind of upset tonight, and so, boom, that's not a decision. It's like, actually, what you need is community, knowing God's heart is reconciliation and restoration, because the, the category of abandonment can be a large category. But there's no way you can read the words of Jesus or the words of Paul or the testimony of Scripture and go, God's heart, again, let me say it for marriage, is for us to say this, I'm committed to you and all the ways that you will change. I'm gonna do something I've never done. We're gonna stop here, I'm gonna pray for us. I've got way too much stuff to say. We're gonna come back next week and we're gonna dive back into this and we're gonna talk about the effect of this on children because we didn't even get there. Is there is a whole element of godly offspring that we have to raise the next generation and the effect of, not forget divorce for a second, the effect of just not godly marriages. Marriages where they're bitter and they're resentful and mom and dad don't really love each other and they don't really love Christ. It, it, it's it, the effect on the next generation and we have got to reach the next generation. We have got to reach the next generation. We've got to reach our kids. That's one of the reasons we're coming back with kids ministry. One of the reasons we're coming back with kids ministry is because you parents, including me, we need help. And one of the reasons that we're talking about the weekender, some of you, here's your application. I'm going to the weekender. That's it. I don't need to pray about it. You're going to talk to your spouse afterwards. We're going. We're getting connected. For, for some of you singles, you've got to realize, okay, here's, it, here's what it is. Do not compromise. Date in community. Do not cohabitate. It's like that. So don't, okay, here, let's do it. Date in community. That's a really big deal. Um, people are different when they're alone. Date in community. Secondly, um, don't cohabitate. Cohabitate is practice for divorce. 
That's what it is. Um, the, the stats are in, the science is done, the facts are in. Uh, if you want to make sure that you don't understand commitment, cohabitate first. Cohabitation is up 1,500% since 1950. And you can't practice marriage. You can't practice being fully committed. And don't compromise. Don't go from, you, you know, you got, when you're 20, you got this long list. He wants to be a spiritual leader. I hope that he'll have a ministry. I hope he'll want to have lots of kids too. You know, you're 25. Uh, he needs to believe in God. You're 30. He needs to used to believe in God. Some of you, this is it. Some of you, you've got to get counseling. You're there, right? There's always three levels. It's like, what can we normal people like help you with? Like your community group can help you with. It's, it's new. It's not that complicated. It's not that complex. Okay, great. We're going to help you. You could, you could pull off in the corner after this service and talk about some things. We're going to pray for you. We're going to help you. Some of you, you, you need more than just people care. You need pastor care. You're like, that's it. I need, to talk to, I need to talk to somebody on this staff team who could help me, who has some extra time, can meet with me, can think biblically about these. Some of you need professional care. People care, pastor care, professional care. It's been too long. It's been too complex. It's been too comprehensive. You need extra care. What I want to do is I want to pray for us because we have to have strong marriages. We have to have strong marriages for strong kids. We have to have strong families for strong churches. And a strong church is the hope of any city. This is all for the sake of Christ, who is the great Husband, if you ever wonder, and I feel compelled to say this too, if you've ever wondered where do you get the energy, the fiber, the resources to love your unlovable spouse, you realize that Jesus Christ has been married to the worst bride possible. And you realize that Jesus Christ forgave his bride while she was crucifying him. Think about that. And think about that over time. Connect yourself in community. Work on your marriage. See what God does. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for marriages. Lord, I pray for single women. There are so many, I just want to honor them. There are so many great, godly single women that I have no idea why they're single. Lord, I want to pray for them. I pray that you'd give them a godly man that they wouldn't compromise, that you'd give them a godly man. I pray that so many marriages would happen. We just have this long, long list of marriages on the other side of COVID we're going to be doing. Lord, I pray for marriages. I pray, we have so many. I meet, I've been meeting in the last few weeks couples that just got married. Like, they, hey, I got married three weeks ago. We got married last month. Lord, I pray that they would put the good habits in place. Lord, I pray for just a group of people. I know we have had single dads in here and single moms in here and people who, who left their families and came to Christ later. And there's just so many stories, Lord, and there's so much grace. Lord, help us to experience the grace of God. But we, we don't do it by finding a loophole. <laughs> we do it by confessing our sins. We do it by working on our marriages. And we do it by looking to the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen.